All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of Pastor Wolf Mueller's Has American Christianity Failed? My plan is uh, today and next week, and we'll be through with the text. So um, whether we are or we aren't, we will be. <laughs> and um, then we'll be starting Martin Chemnitz in Caridian the week following. So if you are participating in the study, you haven't picked up that text yet, you want to get after it and make sure you have it. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We are in the chapter on eschatology. We left off at page 226. And as best as I can recall, we wrapped up the discussion of the rapture. We've seen that it's based on a misreading of anywhere from two to three different texts, and that the texts themselves very clearly mitigate against a secret, quiet coming of Jesus wherein the saints on earth are somehow swept up. Rather, when Jesus comes, it is with the voice and shout of an archangel, with the trumpet blown by God. It is loud, it is cosmic, it is definitive. And we saw what happens should the Lord return, let's say, in 30 seconds. We, who are all living, will be changed in in the blink of an eye, transformed from this mortality into immortality. The dead who have died in Christ will return with him and will be placed into their bodies and will be raised in their bodies. We will all be raptured, quote-unquote, caught up into the air with the Lord Jesus. Why? to be saved from the wrath and judgment that is to be poured out upon the world. Um, That's one way of looking at it. Again, and we we just had this conversation actually before this class started, myself and a number of others, but the way the scriptures speak about the events of the, the last judgment and even the particular judgment, what happens when an individual Christian dies and faces the Lord, the scriptures, as, as is so often their way, have many different ways of speaking about this and use many different images, and uh, I hope it's not going too far to say, in some respects, analogies. One thing the scriptures don't really do is set up for us, in a way that kind of fits our Western minds, a precise chronology. You don't turn to the last chapter the last chapter of Revelation, maybe the last page of your Bible, and look and see a little itinerary printed there and exactly what's going to be scheduled, what time, and how long it's all going to take, etc. So what the Bible does is in many and various ways gives us profound truths so we know the substance of the judgment, we know the substance of these things, and then how they will play out in concrete fact and chronology uh, will be revealed when that day comes. So, in the imagery of the teaching on the rapture, we're, we're pulled up, and there's kind of two different t- 
takes on that. I shared those with you. Um, one is one is pulled out of the judgment that befalls the wicked world. And another from Revelation itself is pulled up with the Lord Jesus because the next move is to attack and to push out the devil and the angels. They've already been pushed out of heaven by Michael and the other angels. Now they're going to be pushed out of the earth by Christ because he's true man and by all of us, the saints. And then comes the new heavens and the new earth. So, Can those both be true? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so if you have any other questions about the rapture or anything immediately connected with it, I'm happy to entertain those. Otherwise, my plan is to move us into the next section, how to read Revelation. Page 226. So, seeing none, let's just press forward. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I've taught Revelation here in this church at least two, maybe three times already. I love it. It's wonderful. Um, my, if I had to, if I had to put it into one sentence or one point, that will be the most formative and shaping. I think, in terms of how you look at Revelation, it would be to, th- if you th- are thinking of Revelation like it's a fifth gospel, then you're actually thinking of it in a far better way than any other popular alternatives that present themselves. So, whereas the four Gospels have to do with Jesus' earthly ministry, Revelation has to do with his ongoing heavenly ministry. In fact, connects those dots. The uh, synoptic Gospels uh, from synopsis, having the same vantage point or viewpoint, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, John's not one of the synoptics. He doesn't see the see things the same way. That's evident if you've ever studied that book. John's got his own, uh, his own thing going on. But the synoptic Gospels, generally speaking, lead us up to the Ascension, here especially um, Luke in view. And what then takes place after the Ascension? That's where a book like Revelation comes in. This is what Jesus is doing now that he's ascended to the throne room of God. This is what it means. This is the gospel of Christ Jesus glorified and in heaven and his ongoing work and ministry to his people of all times and places until he returns. Make sense? So, Wolfmuller is, um, the points that he brings out uh, complement that, that point that I just made, certainly. So, Just to begin at the bottom of 226, just like every book of the Bible, Wolfmuller writes, the last book of the scriptures is intended by God to comfort us. This book, though, is especially shrouded. I may challenge that a little. I don't know that every book is intended by God to comfort us, but I understand what he's saying. This book, though, is especially shrouded in mystery and surrounded with fear and confusion. This is not helped by teachers who bring revelation to the church as a chronology of the events preceding the second coming. If we try to understand Revelation through the newspaper, we will certainly miss the comfort and peace that Jesus is delivering us to us there. Right, and our focus shifts entirely because we're looking at Revelation as something that predicts the future rather than something that reveals Jesus to us. 
I don't want to steal Wolf Mueller's thunder, but that's his rule number one. Remember who is being revealed? Jesus. So if you're studying Revelation or you're doing theology without having your sights, Revelation, quote-unquote, theology, without having your sights set on Jesus, then you're doing something other than the author itself himself intends. Of course, John, who wrote the Gospel and the Epistles. Okay, top of 227, the visions given to John are often difficult to decode and understand. But we must recognize in this book the voice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, seated on the throne. We see in these visions that Jesus, who was crucified for us, is now enthroned for us. And he will, on the last day, return to rescue us. We will then consider five rules for reading Revelation with the hopes that this book will deliver to us the joy of our salvation and that we would all, when our last hour comes, join the crowd around the throne of Jesus singing his praises. That's exactly right. And I think that that's a, f- a fantastic point he makes. Um, that when we look at Revelation as a predictor of near-term future events, the effect of that is anxiety. The effect of that is this sort of frenzy of trying to interpret it and get ahead of it and understand it and know it and be able to react to it. The book of Revelation, in terms of its tonality or theme or emotional impact, would simply be summarized as this. Jesus wins. And that's the beautiful glorious comfort of Revelation. So despite all the scary imagery, and you kind of love the scary imagery because it's a scary world and people are doing nasty, wicked stuff and there's all kinds of ground moving underneath our feet and um, you go, you go, ha, you know. I hope God's aware of all of this. I hope God's got a plan. And, <laughs> and you read Revelation and it's like, yeah, he's all aware. Yeah, it's all in his hand. Yeah, he's got a plan. And guess what? Jesus wins. So, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be dismayed. That's what all the terrifying imagery of Revelation is for, so that when you see terrifying realities, you go, oh, been there, done that. Jesus wins. And that's the goal of Revelation. So, I think that's something that American Christianity really misses out on, too. It's like, ooh, the sensationalism, the anxiety, the worry, the darkness. And those are all, the, those are all themes that Revelation isn't about, Revelation presents those things as a problem to be answered, and the answer is Christ Jesus, his ongoing triumph, his final triumph. Jesus is victorious. God is well aware. Heaven is connected in earth. God hasn't shut the doors, and he's having a party up in heaven with the saints, and he's not paying attention to what's going on down here. That's not what's happening. Um, and, and again, just that absolute comfort. And, and I think, too, like encouragement for the faith, even appealing maybe to some baser instincts in us, but good ones for us to remember. We're not Christians because we want to lose. We're not Christians because we're losers. <laughs> we, we have picked the winning team, and that's fine and that's right. And in fact, like, I think that that's a great deal of appeal to Revelation is, look, I'm going to win. This is how it's going to go down. Do you want to be part of this thing or not? You know, Get in. We're going we're gonna to have victory. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I've already waxed uh, too long on this point, but I think it's important as we talk about the failures of American Christianity and Revelation and the reading of Revelation, certainly one of those major failures. 
Okay, so rule number one, remember who is being revealed. And I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to touch on the opening point because you'll get it. The first words uh, are the most important, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the working title, um, the apocalypsis of uh, Jesus Christ, so the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Why would Christ need to be unveiled? Because he's up in heaven where we can't see him, sitting at the throne of God, and from there he's doing all of his operations. And so to unveil that is to pull back the curtain so that we can see into heaven and see what he's up to. So that's the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Um, You have a grammatical ambiguity. Is this a subjective or objective genitive? Um, Is Jesus doing the revealing? That would make it a subjective genitive. He's the subject. Yes, Jesus is doing the doing. He's doing the revealing. But is Jesus also the objective genitive? That is, it is Jesus who is the object being unveiled and revealed. Yes, that's also true. So either way you take it, the answer is yes. And Wolf Miller here takes it as Jesus is the object, the thing that is being revealed. And that's fine. I'm sure that Wolf Miller would have no problem agreeing with both sides of that coin. But that's the opening title. It's not the revelation of the end things. It's not the revelation of the final chronology. It's not... Here's your instruction manual for how to survive the apocalypse. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I think that that opening line of revelation can refresh your mind how we should read it. All right, any questions or comments on Wolfmuller's rule number one? Straightforward. Oh, okay, we have one up front. um, Can we get you a microphone? You have to do some acrobatics to get over there. Some cartwheels over there. Yeah, he's still out. He's recovering. I think all his sprinting around wore him down. Yes. Uh, I just would would comment that our general society today and culture really has this messed up. Then. Oh yeah. Because they they look for everything probably but Christ in in this. Mm. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and as someone was lamenting earlier today, a lot of what plagues us is uh, reading comprehension, right? In our culture, <laughs> uh, good point. I was kind of marveling at, at this. I mean, I, I don't, I don't consider myself immune from that. I mean, we're all in, swimming in the same contaminated fish tank here, but sometimes. I have had I have had people look at me like I'm some sort of like biblical wizard <laughs> simply because I know how to read, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we yeah we've got folks that just like they have not learned that skill at yeah. all. Yeah. So just using grammar, you're like revealing profound truths and meaning to them. Um, I mean, I'll take it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like the you know when your car breaks down. Um, you know, you open the hood because you hope there's just a big red button that says push me and it'll get better, you know. There's not. It's just this network of complexity, and so you shut it. You take it to the mechanic, and the mechanic goes, oh, this is an easy thing, 450 bucks. <laughs> yeah, so um, we've lost that art of, of being able to look at uh, just anything. I mean, not even just the Bible, but just that reading comprehension. And, 
Um, that's one where it's so evident in Revelation because if you read Revelation, if you understand anything just about literary structure, you can start to, I mean, it's just self-evidently clear in ways that modern preachers, modern exegetes don't understand it. Um, of course, your comment leads me to one of my favorite things to recall about Revelation, and that is that the throne room of God, where you have these beautiful, wonderful visual, I mean, even though it's written, visual descriptions of the Father, the one who sits upon the throne, and the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit, and the sevenfold candelabra, that that throne room of God is the hub. It's the organizing principle so that as you go off on the cycles of seven, you're always returning, and even sometimes in the middle of those cycles of seven, you're returning back to the throne room to see what's going on. And so what comfort there is in that. Every time you return to the throne room, you're returning to the God who in every way depicts himself for our salvation. You know, that's why the Holy Spirit is depicted as the candelabra. He's enlightening, um, revealing to us God, um, revealing to us most specifically Christ, who's right behind him. And Christ is depicted, you know, here not as the Lion of Judah, Point Wolfmiller makes, but as the Lamb. That we might see him as the one who was slain for us. And so even Christ in his majesty before the throne of God bears the marks of love and atonement and forgiveness of our sins. So it's such a comforting thing. And then, of course, the one seated upon the throne, while being filled with awe and uh, mystery and, uh, and, an, and an element of like good, wholesome fear, <laughs> the one seat upon the throne is described as being enveloped in a spherical rainbow, which of course the, the rainbow colors remind us, um, that's why we've got, you know, Satan's used that as a perversion in our day and age, but those, that rainbow and those rainbow colors, you couldn't have a stronger visual indication of the mercy of God that even though he pours out his wrath upon the wicked, he is merciful to save the faithful. Just as he saved Noah, he saves Christ, and just as he saved Noah and seven others, he saves Christ and his sevenfold church, all of us. So as you return to that hub over and over, you're confronted over and over with a God who is gracious and merciful and forgiving and loves man, but is also absolutely powerful enough and fearful enough to take care of evil and put it away forever. Sorry for that long answer and digression from your question. but yeah. Okay, so the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's rule number one. How about rule number two, bottom of 227? Wolfmuller's rule number two. Remember who revelation is for. The church of all time. This is a brilliantly simplistic point. Let's just take the first sentence, if revelation is an unfolding of the events immediately preceding the last day, it becomes a useless book for the last 2,000 years of church history. I mean, if, if this has to do, let's assume we're in the last final days, you know, right now. Okay, then it was incomprehensible to the people he handed it to in the first century and incomprehensible to people for the last 2,000 years. Or take the thought experiment in a slightly different direction. What if the world carries on for another 1,000 years? We've all been completely misusing it, misunderstanding it, misapplying it, and it has effectively been a closed-in, meaningless book. Worse, a distraction to us. Okay, so then we can be certain, since that, that isn't the case, then... This isn't a book about the events immediately preceding the last day. 
This is a book about the ongoing ministry of Christ Jesus from his throne in heaven. What God, what the holy angels, what the saints in heaven are thinking and doing, and what our relationship to them is as we struggle and fight and keep the faith as the church militant here in the fallen world. A lot of revelation is also, and again, I'm sorry to be so basic about this, but, I, it, but it's really helpful, and I, maybe especially helpful to the immature-minded, which I myself probably still am greatly. Um, and that's, that's that not only are you on the winning side, but a lot of revelation is, um, let me show you who's on your team. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, uh, if you're a little scrawny kid, and, and you, you look at the opposing team, and you know their, their quarterback is 50 pounds heavier than you. That means their linemen are like 200 pounds heavier than you, and there's this gigantic force. You go, I'm supposed to go play against, I'm going to get crushed. This is going to be the worst Friday night of my life. And then if you look behind you, though, you see that, oh, wait a minute, I've got a massive athletic team behind me is, let's say, who's number one right now in college football? Unfortunately, the, not the Colorado Buffaloes, uh, but the Georgia Bulldogs. Let's say you look behind you, and there's the Georgia Bulldogs standing behind you, and now you're going, okay, I think we got this. No problem. And that's a lot of what Revelation is like, too. That's why Christ is described in such majesty and awe. The first glimpse of Christ in Revelation sends John flat on his face, and there's a fearful, wonderful Jesus like you've never seen him before. And this is Jesus with his eyes aflame. This is Jesus as the King of Kings, the one who rules the nations with an iron rod. It's Jesus who's Feet are described as being iron, his clothing shining with the sun, and from his mouth does not flow um, hippie-esque platitudes. From his mouth comes a fiery sword, a two-edged sword. So this is a, and then and then from this, of course, you see angels that are of extreme size and majesty and power. Um, the four living creatures, these angelic beings, I, I mean, they're humongous. That there's an angel who's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the earth, and he's, his head is rising into the clouds, and he speaks, and everything shakes. Okay, so it's also like, welcome to who's on your side. <laughs> I know it looks dark, and your eyes are focused on the opponents, and they look tough and scary, but Revelation also gives you this opportunity to look behind you and see the Lord Jesus in his majesty, see the holy angels, and even the saints. Even the saints are described... Um, as a fearful and great army. And so that's, that's very comforting as well. Uh, the church on earth is not, so often we see it as beaten and battered and bruised and compromised and on death's doorstop. That's not the heavenly perspective. Okay? The heavenly perspective doesn't deny those things, but says hidden within is a strength that's not obvious to our sight. It's comprehensible and only by faith. All right, so yes, the revelation that isn't going to be about the events immediately preceding the last day, if it is, it's irrelevant for everyone except for that one generation to whom it is written, of whom John says nothing. So you get into authorial intent there, and obviously that's not his intent. He's writing it for a first century audience. Okay, well, that probably pounds that point into the 
dust. How about rule number three? Scripture interprets scripture. This is an obvious one and not um, applicable to Revelation only. Applicable to all texts of scripture. And to put just a slightly finer point on this, it's the difficult parts of scripture should be understood through the easier parts of scripture. That's maybe a slightly more refined version of scripture interprets scripture. First paragraph, that's all we'll do. Last sentence being the main point. This is a rule for reading all of the Bible. It is especially important when reading Revelation. Over half of the verses in Revelation allude to some Old Testament text. Right. That's also the embarrassing thing about Revelation is nobody understands it because nobody understands the, f- the present or the future. No, because nobody understands the Old Testament. <laughs> if we understood the Old Testament, we'd suddenly understand better what Revelation means because it's flowing directly from the Old Testament and the Old Testament imagery. Wolf Mueller's point, and it's very well taken. So over half of the verses in Revelation, according to Wolf Mueller, allude to some Old Testament text. It is especially important for us to know the other parts of the Bible when studying Revelation. Revelation uses pictures to communicate, and these pictures are mostly drawn from other parts of the Bible. That's true, and true in a twofold way. So in the use of pictures falls within a literary genre, the apocalyptic genre. When we studied Revelation, at seminary, at um, the post-grad level, that was the first thing we did, was read a bunch of apocalyptic texts, uh, some of which were in the Old Testament canon and some of which were outside the Old Testament canon, so that you can get an understanding for the genre, that this is a standalone genre of literature. And you can see common thematic elements, um, biblical and extra-biblical. And then when you go to read Revelation, you go, oh, okay. I know how to interpret this. Uh, it's, it's understanding the genre. And then secondarily, Wolf Mueller's point that a lot of those images are coming right from the Old Testament. Of course, a lot of those images, more specific, not just the Old Testament in general, but most specifically from the texts of the Old Testament which fall within that apocalyptic genre. So that's very, very helpful. But Scripture interprets Scripture. As we put a finer and finer point on that, Uh, the way to read Revelation becomes more and more clear. All right, rule number four, put together what you hear and what you see. When reading Revelation, Wolf Mueller writes, it is important to pay attention to what John hears and what John sees. Oftentimes, John will hear the angel preaching, and then will see what was being preached about. The seeing and the hearing are quite different, but they are describing the same thing. A few examples will be helpful, and maybe we'll just hit one or two, I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is, this is a really good point about Revelation, is we're very often told what it's about, and then um, what we see depicted is different. That's a literary technique. That's a point, an intentional point. That'll become clear when we get to the concrete examples. Uh, But another aspect of this is to realize that a lot of what Revelation is doing is taking snapshots from different angles. That would be a way of thinking about it. We're all TV people, obviously. Back when the world used to be black and white, and um, then we got TVs and... Then, then eventually the TVs became color, you know, were colored, revealing that we all learned how to be, how to have color. So 
the um, as you trace this back, uh, what you're what you're going to actually see is so. Take, take. Let's do it this way. Just take the ascension of Jesus to the coming. Take that whole time. You can look at that from many different angles in many different ways. And that's a lot of what Revelation is doing. It's repetitions on the same event or the same series of events or the same dynamics, just looking at it in entirely different ways. And so that can be confusing to us because we think of it as a linear book. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Whereas it's not linear, especially when you realize that the throne room's the hub and you've got these little branches where you're always returning to the hub. It's not linear. And then what you've got, like, so in these series of seven, you remember the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of incense, okay? Uh, What these are basically doing is giving you different takes on the same events. It's kind of like when you're watching a, I don't know why my mind's on football. Oh, yeah, I do. It's college football season, so that's, it's like the only TV I watch all year pretty much. Um, so when you're watching a football game, you see the play happen, and then they start giving you all the different angles on it. And from what you see, you may think one thing, and you may think, that ref's blind. He's got, he's got University of Nebraska underpants on under his outfit. He's, what is he doing? And then you start to see all the different camera angles and you go, ah, okay, now I have a fuller understanding. It's a lot of what John's doing in, in Revelation. He's giving you a lot of different cam- camera angles so that you can come to a better understanding of the nature of that reality. Okay, so let's give two concrete examples. Um, yes, famously the lion and the lamb Let's see if we're up at the top of... No, 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 I guess we gotta, we got to stop. start at the bottom of 228. I'll do it quick. One of the elders around the throne comforts John with this news. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So you're thinking of a, uh, a king, son of David, but lord of David. That's inherent in root of David. And then... Lion. So you're thinking in terms of king and lion, images of great power. Okay. So the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. That begins the first cycle of seven in Revelation. John hears the report that the lion of Judah is worthy to open the seals. Then John looks, and this is what he sees, quote, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, end quote. So does he see a lion? No. Does he see a triumphant king? No. He sees a lamb, and not only a lamb, but a lamb who is bloodied. A lamb has a standing as though it had been slain. John hears the sermon of the lion, and then sees the completely contrary vision of the lamb. But look, this lion and lamb are the same. Bingo. That's so much of Revelation is playing with these contrary and counter themes to give you different views on the same reality. So is Christ a lion or a lamb? Yes. A lamb to us, a lion to our enemies. Yeah. 
So that's the, that, and that, again, that can confound us largely because we've lost touch with this genre and this way of writing and um, kind of this two antithetical things set next to each other. Um, but that's the bread and butter of Revelation. Okay, the another, another example, chapter 7, of course, the 144,000 mentioned specifically here in chapter 7, as well as the great multitude later on. So I think we can do this um, by jumping down to the, the right under the quote of Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Wolf Mueller writes, the 144,000 is the innumerable multitude. That'll be clear enough to you if you just read uh, Revelation 7. The saints of the Lord brought from death to life in Jesus' name. Again, the thing that is heard and the thing that is seen are described as opposites of each other, but they are, in fact, descriptions of the same thing, in this case, the church. Yeah, and specifically, I mean, to clarify here, the 144,000, the 12,000 from the 12 tribes, that's military language and imagery. Why military language and imagery? Well, these are described as being on earth. This is the church on earth, which is also the church militant. We're in battle. We're in battle against ourselves, our own flesh. We're in battle against the world. We're in battle against the devil and all the principalities and powers of darkness. We fight them, Revelation says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those are our weapons, the blood and the word. And that's how we overcome. That's what it, but in terms of a meta-narrative, that's what we're doing down here. I know it takes the form of fulfilling our vocations and keeping the faith and um, you know, all the things that God gives us to do. But the reality, I, and look at that, I mean, there's, there's kind of a contrast that precisely in the humble, quiet, domestic duties of vocation and quietness of life and faithfulness to God is these are precisely the acts of cosmic warfare. <laughs> and this is, these are precise, this is precisely the nature of the aggression and offensive of the church militant. What happens when you die? You move from the church militant to the church triumphant, to that great crowd of witnesses gathered around the throne. Um, it's one and the same church. It's more analogous to sitting on one side of the sanctuary and then crossing the aisle over to the other side of the sanctuary than it is anything else. We simply pass from militant church to church at rest. So, beautiful. Um, for all the saints, great, uh, great hymn in our hymnody, um, but talks about this in, in just such beautiful, beautiful language that um, really encouraging us to be strong and fight the good fight. And ironically, again, we do that not with bombast and you know, theological nukes. Um, we do that by living quiet, peaceable, godly lives. Um, that are, it's a complete offense to Satan. And um, then, as, <laughs> as we battle and fight, um, God then gives us rest. And so, great encouragement to fight with everything we have and pour it all out and spend it all. I don't want to, you know, as the, pro, as the proverbial saying is, I don't want to go sliding into heaven saying, woo, what a ride. I mean, give, me, give it a rest. I want to I go like sliding into heaven in my Lord's arms going, yeah, I spent his, 
as much as I could spend. I'm ready for rest. <laughs> you know, that's um, and I didn't spend it on my own pleasure, as if as if this life were just a roller coaster ride for us to enjoy. I I spent it um, trying to uh, push against Satan. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So, and then as we go into rest, like it's like you know, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> There's so much truth to that. Like, oh, you look tired, you should sleep. Ah, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There's so much truth to that. We're so worried about being stressed out, spent, over leveraged, spread too thin. I don't know. I've leaned into all that and said, no, that's like, what? You want to be well rested now? So you get into heaven? I mean, that's like being well fed before. It's like, you know what that's like? That's like sitting down with a bag of junk food and just like filling your mouth with a bunch of chips that you don't even really like. And then comes Thanksgiving dinner and you're too full to eat it. That's like what resting up right now is equivalent to. It's like you're going to be too full for the rest to come. I mean, why don't we go into heaven just weary as can be and receive the fullness of that rest? So anyway, you do as you see fit. But I kind of lean into this... Um, Lean into this idea of the whole point is to spend ourselves, to pour ourselves out as drink offerings um, unto the Lord. Okay, so if you're tired, good job. (laughs) Good job. And stop thinking it's a problem. Start embracing it as your priestly sacrifice and an offering well-pleasing through Christ Jesus to your Father who is in heaven. And then just know that rest is coming. Victory and rest are coming. Okay, so rule five. Uh, rule five is um, notice the movement from earth to heaven. And I think the, the, yeah, the opening line here from Wolf Miller will help. Revelation, quote-unquote revelation, the word, is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse in English. Apocalypse meaning unveiling. And that is what the visions of Revelation do. Unseen spiritual realities are unveiled. And again, those are present tense realities, ongoing present tense realities. They'll go right up until um, Christ returns. So the curtain is pulled back so we might see the spiritual activity on earth and in heaven. Yeah, that's the frame. That's the organizing principle of Revelation and why it's so helpful because instead of like, well, how do I think of these things and how do I think of culture and how do I interface with culture and all of this, I don't know, topics I find obnoxious. Um, instead, it's like, hey, here's what it looks like from heaven's perspective. You want to try that one on? Oh, yeah, that's much better. That's much clearer. Um, there's terrible darkness and terrible violence and terrible realities and terrible spiritual deceit and depravity. Um, but Christ rules, reigns, and he is uh, he and all the saints and angels are supporting their the church on earth as we fight the good fight and we know that rest and final victory are coming. And so um, heaven is well aware and heaven is constantly, you know, that's the idea of apocalypsis is what's being unveiled is the fact that Christ is well aware of everything we're doing and is participating in this life and so is all of heaven and heaven is well aware of everything that's going on here on earth and is participating. And Not to say that like, you know, Grandpa's up there looking at the glass floor, seeing everything you do. That's not the point. Um, the point is that heaven and earth are intimately connected, and heaven interpenetrates earth, and we're not alone. So when you feel like, and of course as Lutherans we feel this way. It's like in this country, sometimes you probably feel lonely as a Christian. 
and then you become a Lutheran and you're even lonelier. <laughs> then you get isolated, you know, in some place where Lutheranism maybe isn't really all that Lutheran, and you begin feeling more and more isolated. That's one of the most beautiful things that um, Revelation can do for you is be like, yeah, you're not isolated at all. You're kind of like a, a Navy SEAL dropped off in enemy territory. In that sense, you're isolated, but behind you is an entire military force and nation and king who love you, support you, and will make sure that the job gets done and that you're ultimately going to be victorious. So I think I, what I picked out as, as kind of the sum, summary theme here from Wolf Mueller's section, the third full paragraph. Um, he says, there we go back down to earth. We've up, been up in heaven. We see Jesus. We realize all is well in heaven. Then we come back down to earth and see more trouble. The seals are being opened. The trumpets are being blown. The bowls of wrath are being poured out. There is darkness and disease, rivers of blood and piles of corpses. All imagery and revelation. And just when we've had enough, the angels come again to take us back to heaven to get another glimpse of the throne. There sits Jesus, our Jesus, and all is well. So, in great big giant type, this revelation of Jesus, then, bottom of 230, is a comforting foretaste of the revelation of Jesus and the glory and kindness that await his people. Jesus is coming soon, and this is our great hope and prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, a nice way to end the chapter on eschatology. Any questions you have in terms of those themes? or Yes, Liz, uh, we got to get you a microphone. Sorry, I just doxed you. On the um, tools that we have, the blood and the word. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I kind of know the word, but what is the blood a tool as? Oh yeah, great question. That's the that's the sacrament of the altar, the, the blood of the lamb. Yeah, yeah, the sacrament of the altar that um, touches us and cleanses us. And um, here, may, maybe. Um, well, let me just tell you like where the church fathers went with this theology so that when the blood of the lamb, okay, if you you have to th- you have to think like you're the devil for a minute, okay? What's your what's your goal? What's your goal? You want to pollute men with sin? You want to destroy their consciences? You want to have them in despair or pride? Even better, if they're cycling back and forth so fast they don't even know what's happening and the people around them just don't even know what's happening except for this person's a jerk. All right? So despair and pride, like just whirling around the, the fallen human being. And you are doing that because that, when it comes to maturity, is going to lead them into death and eternal separation from God. And that's your whole goal because you're, because you're miffed with God and you think that if, if I can't hurt God directly, I'm going to take away that which he loves most, which are the human beings he created in his image. So that's the kind of war that Satan's after. It's really nasty. I mean, if you think about it in these terms, Satan is doing the very worst. Imagine a terrorist who doesn't attack you head on, but just goes after your children all day, every day. That's all he does. We would think that that's the most despicable kind of human being imaginable. Well, that's welcome to the devil's whole plan. He's literally the, one, I mean, the most despicable creature we can fathom. Okay. And that's what he's up to. So that's what he wants to do. What is the antidote to that? 
the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that cleanses you from those sins, that sets right your conscience and heart, that stops that whirling and spinning of pride and despair because the, the attention of the conscience is not grounded on self, um, but is grounded on Jesus, grounded on his atonement made once and for all, grounded on his blood. And now here's what the early church fathers do. When that blood is, because it's not abstract. It's, it's not imaginary. It's not an analogy. The real blood of Jesus has to touch you to cleanse you. And that's precisely why he says this is the New Testament in, uh, in this cup. That cup of blood is the New Testament. This is the New Testament in my blood. Drink of it. When that real blood of Jesus touches your lips, it really cleanses you. And it also transforms you. What is, from, a, from the demonic standpoint, there's nothing worse. That's like the atomic bomb. That's like the kryptonite. That's like the worst possible thing because it is taking away everything. It is purifying, cleansing, making right the spirit, clean the heart. It is um, establishing a new creature. And what's worse is after he receives or she receives the, bo- the blood of Christ on the lips, then she turns and speaks. And what does she speak? Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ. She becomes to a demon, like, you know, what we think of like a fire-breathing monster with, you know, sharp, jagged teeth. That's what saints become to the demons. We become a terror to the demons because of what Christ puts upon our lips. It's the greatest weapon uh, this world has ever known. So we overcome them by the very blood of the Lamb, that blood that cleanses us in the first place um, and saves us, but then becomes the very tool of our attack. Remember the sword that proceeds from Jesus' mouth? That's the gift of, um, of, of, that, of that weaponry. Um, you can think of that as the word of the testimony. That's a more direct line, the word that proceeds from Jesus' mouth, the word of our testimony. But you can also think about it as the blood he pours on our lips, and then we open our lips to speak, and that's our warfare. So this is how he is overcome, not only in the sense that he has to let go of us individually, but he's overcome because the whole collection of the church on earth is a bunch of fire-breathing dragons going out to conquer the demons. Um, We're demons to the demons. That's how the church fathers like to talk about it. That's why when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It's why Satan and his horde cannot stand the name of Jesus. It's why they cannot stand the blood of Jesus. so, yeah, sorry, that, that's the best I can do. And, yeah. Okay, so um, anything else there on, that was, a gr- that was a good question or comment, and anything else? Is the 12,000 from each tribe, is that symbolic? Is that there? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I think it's later on, I don't think it's in chapter 7, they're described as... Um, as virgin um, Jewish males, and so a lot of a lot of the imagery there, like the fact that they're only males, um, the fact that it's twelve thousand from every tribe, the way they're described, uh, really evokes in biblical imagery and language military motif, military muster, um, young men, battle-ready men in formation. That's the image, and well organized and well delineated. So that 144,000 is properly the church on earth, which I also love because the church on earth feels disorganized. Christ says, from my angle, it's perfectly organized. (laughs) Uh, The church on earth sometimes feels like everybody's shooting each other. Uh, That's not how it is from Christ's vantage point. 
it's all completely organized, well-disciplined, and well-directed. So this is um, accessible only to faith and contrary to what we see, but that's really like almost the entire nature of the Christian faith. Because if you trace that all the way back to the fall, that's the entire nature of the fall. She sees that it's good, hears that it's not, eats it on the basis of her sight, not her hearing. Everything else since then is a reversal. Here's how it looks. You know, it's just a lesson on it. Here's how it looks, and here's what I say. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your eyes, or are you going to believe what I tell you? And so um, it's true in terms of uh, the church and Christ being in control and everything else. We look with our eyes. And Wolfman is going get to get on to this again when he talks about this lookaboutism, um, this theology by eyesight. Uh, much better to do theology by the ear. Okay, chapter 11 is surprised by the gospel, and I intend to go fairly quickly through this. Um, he begins the chapter with a quotation of Ephesians 1.7. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's drop down to the Last paragraph on 232. Wolfmuller writes, For years I lived and labored in the theological wasteland of American Christianity. and This was the trouble. There was no hope for me. Everything was centered on me. My works, my life, my experiences and excitement, my resolve and sincerity. There was no kindness and mercy for me. There was no certainty or comfort there was no gospel. And we've talked at the beginning of this book about ways in which that's true. Your mileage may vary depending upon which church you were or maybe continue to be in. But in many cases in American Christianity, the gospel is for you if you're an unbeliever, and then as soon as you become a believer, the gospel spigot turns off, and the your sincerity, your integrity, you, 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 turns on. And so this is then a very valid critique when we say in American Christianity, so often it's not about Christ, it's about the Christian. And if we see that widespread, for example, in American evangelicalism, that it's a theology of the Christian rather than Christ, there's a huge push to put Christ back in his place. I would just put this warning and caveat that when it becomes Christ only and not the Christian at all, we don't have a faithful representation of biblical theology. We've just got a reaction to an error. So it's the Christian, not Christ. That would be maybe the error we see rampant in evangelicalism. An overreaction to that would be Christ, not the Christian. What do you see in the scriptures? Christ with emphasis and the Christian secondarily as recipient of his grace and mercy, as recipient of new powers um, by which we can grow in godliness. So we want to get both Christ and the Christian, but we want to get the emphasis on the right syllable. Christ, major, Christian, minor. Okay. If we fall into either of those others, we, have, we immediately have an error. And how do you know that? Because when you read the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, they're not Christian-centered documents. They're Christ-centered documents. But also when you read the scriptures, they're not Christ alone, as if the Christian had nothing to do with anything. 
fact, what you see all throughout the scriptures is Christ is the centerpiece. This is what he gives and does for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. Anyone just briefly familiar with the scriptures will understand what I'm saying. We want a scriptural theology as opposed to an erroneous theology or a theology that overreacts to the error because so frequently the opposite of an error is just the opposite error. Okay, so Wolf Mueller's reflections here, and I have heard in my years here at Faith, many people coming out of the evangelical churches in particular, some out of Rome who report this, having the same experience essentially as Wolf Mueller, that everything became centered on the individual Christian as opposed to Christ. What Wolf Mueller does next is he goes into uh, sin forgiven for you, then the devil destroyed for you, and then finally death swallowed up for you. So we see the sin, death, and the devil motif uh, going in. And we're going we're gonna to get a little bit of take here on why he says the gospel is always a surprise. Um, I think maybe what we'll do is save that for next week because that'll lead us to the conclusion of this chapter. And if we have time, we'll hit the appendix then, which just has to do with introducing the Book of Concord. And I think would be good if we can hit it because uh, it'll just help clarify what the Book of Concord is and what its place and role as a confessional document is for us as uh, Christians. So that's the plan to finish it out. Are there any questions or comments? So just to drive home the point, if you haven't gotten Martin Chemnitz in Caridian, Word, Sacrament, and Ministry, you want to pick that up because we're uh, two weeks away from starting that text. All right, the Lord be with you.